Well, greetings, Scarlet City Church family and friends. This is a special Sunday. It's our nine-year anniversary as a local church, and and it's a time to to celebrate and reflect. And as I reflect and think about 2011, wow, I mean, 2011 has only been nine years, but it feels like a a distant and far off place compared to where we find ourselves in 2020. And the reality is, is that a lot has changed. A lot has changed in our culture and society. And this has been brought about by a number of different advancements and developments in our, in our world. I mean, think right now in 2020, pretty much every adult has a personalized smartphone device that can capture pictures and, and video. I mean, in the, in the past, people needed a, a video camera. Now, everyone has one in their pocket. And so they're able to capture footage of events that in the past would have required a, a journalist or a videographer or someone just happening to be recording something with their camera. Now, anyone can pull out their phone and record something. And this has elevated and brought to light things that in the past would have been unseen. Unless you had been there and witnessed it firsthand or experienced something, now someone pulls out a camera and they see it and they can project it online. With social media now, people can share videos, people can share views. Anybody, anyone has a voice and can share something with others. And so this has brought a hyper sense of awareness of, of difference, a hypersense of awareness of experiences that previously had gone unseen. And this has led to the uprising with issues of like racial, racial injustice, where before we may have believed, no, that didn't happen, but now we can see with our eyes certain expressions of injustice. And along with the rise of technology and social media, you also have the globalization of markets and even nations and, and the confinement of power and wealth to the few. And this has led to the rise of nationalism. I mean, we've seen this in the United States and Great Britain and, and other countries in Europe and Brazil and India, around the world, this rise in people wanting to bring power back to their sense of place because they've experienced the the, the, the hardship of globalization and outsourcing of jobs and, and the effects that that's had on, on people and communities. And then along with this, there's been the, this uh, deconstruction, deconstruction of, of gender and identity, deconstruction even of, of race and government and economics and deconstruction of faith. Many have left their Christian faith, not for reasons in the past. In the past, people, I mean, it's always been an option to walk away from your faith. People would have walked away from their faith because they felt the morality was too constrictive. And so they just, they, they just didn't want God or a pastor or, or some religion telling them how to live. Others walked away from their faith related to issues of struggling with the supernatural and and believing they had to choose between faith and science. And, and are they going to be someone who just trusts in God or are they going to trust in their senses in the world? People would have walked away from their faith because they felt like they needed to make that choice. But now it's different. 
Many are walking away from their faith, not abandoning the supernatural, not abandoning even ethics, but feeling like they're walking toward, walking toward something that is more loving and more just. In the American church, in American society, people look at the church, many look at the church, as an expression of injustice. Completely different than people looked at the church in the past. And they take biblical concepts like justice and love, and they they deconstruct the very foundations on which those come from. There's widespread deconstruction. And this all, of course, now happening amidst a pandemic, a global uh, health pandemic in, in our world, and, and that has exposed the fault lines and exposed the differences and divisions in our country in particular. And so the world of 2020 is very different than 2011, and there's been widespread change. And, and that forces us as a church to think about what does it look like to incarnate God's love, God's justice, God's work in our world today. And this has, this has really dominated much of my thought life recently. I've been thinking and processing with elders and others, what does it look like? If we were to plant a church now, what would it look like? What does it look like to embody the gospel, to bring God's kingdom to earth in 2020? And, and if I could just share, I'm personally, man, I, I am more excited about ministry and the gospel than ever before. Partly because I feel like it is so relevant and partly because as a person who has been on this journey myself of wrestling with faith, I have so come to see and experience the goodness of God's presence that I feel more compelled and excited to bring that into the world now than ever before. And as a church, you know, I'm excited to share some in the coming days and weeks and months to share some of what it looks like for us to refine our vision for, for the context that God has placed us in today. What does it look like to join God's story now? And so I'm excited for that. And I want to invite you into that process. And this morning on our nine-year anniversary, I want to speak to something that is actually at the very heart of what it looks like to be a church in our day and age and moving into the future. And we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 2, and what we're going to look at is what is a humble church? What does it mean to be the humble people of God that are joining His story at work in our world today? And I believe this calling is so relevant. And as someone, if you're, if you're new to the church or if you've been a part of the church, I want to invite you to, to really listen in and, and to consider, you know, is God calling you here? Is God calling you to be a part of this as we, as we establish this foundation and build this to move forward into the future? What we're talking about here is at the very heart of what we want to be about as a church. And so let's look at Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2 concerning what is a humble church. You know, Paul, we've been looking at unity, and unity was so important for Paul. But last week, Paul applied it. He said the only way you can be unified of mind, of convictions, unified of heart, 
unified of purpose. The only way you can find unity is if you're humble, if you build your sense of unity on the humility that we find in Jesus Christ. And then he, he pivots and he says in our passage, so then, so then, and now he's going to articulate what this humility looks like amongst God's people. And so I want to I draw out four critical components of humility in the church. What is a humble church? I want to tease out four observations from our text. First, a humble church is energized by the presence of God. A humble church is God-dependent, God-centered. It gives, it, gives, uh, it gives credibility to God. It is God, it is energized by God. Paul begins, he says, So then, my dear friends, just as you always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, continue working out your salvation with awe and reverence. You know, Paul is talking about obedience and he even equates that with working out your salvation. For Paul, the gospel wasn't just about being saved. It wasn't just having faith in Jesus for your eternity. Paul, for Paul, salvation was about our future eternity, but also about our present. We're to live this out. We're to partner with God in ministry. That's how Paul looked at working out your salvation. And then, But then he says, what is your motivation? He says it shouldn't be his presence. He's saying, don't just do this when when I'm around. Do it even more when when I'm absent. And then in verse 13, he says, for the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. What Paul is saying is, look, you need to be motivated by the presence of God. You need to be motivated by the one who actually has the power to transform you, the one who actually has the ability to energize you, to live out this salvation, to live out love, justice, unity, and care. Paul says you need to make God's presence the the central component of your life, the, the central reality that energizes you. And he qualifies this. He says, continue to work out your salvation with all and reverence, with awe and reverence. Awe and reverence speaks to what captures our heart. It speaks to our longings and our desires. He says, work out your salvation with awe and reverence toward God. Now, when someone or something captures our heart, when, when we're in awe of someone or something, we behave differently. I think of, of growing up and uh, playing sports. I remember when I was a freshman and playing baseball, and there was a girl who I had a crush on. And, and I remember her coming to the game. And when, when she was at the game, I mean, I always tried. It's not like I'm slacking off. But when she was there, you know, you walked with a, a certain swagger, a, you, 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 you tried all, you worked harder. There was pressure uh, to, to perform in a whole new way because of the presence of someone who I was in awe with. When we are in awe with a person, we act differently. Paul's saying, look, don't be in awe of me. Don't, Obey in love 
and embody this gospel life for, for me, to please me. Don't be motivated by me. Don't be motivated also by yourself. Make God the central component of your life, the one who brings you energy. I mean, God, the creator, the one who has creation on his resume, your, your maker, your redeemer, your savior. Allow him to be the, the one you're in awe with, the one who can energize you to love and serve and care for others even when it's hard. A humble church doesn't make a personality or a person or themselves or their denomination the central motivating factor of their life. It makes God. A humble church is energized by God's presence. But then also a humble church, it's not petty. They're not petty. In verse 14, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Oh, man. Paul, you can just imagine him. You know, he's, he's received the correspondence. He's, he's heard the complaints of people in the church. And, and as I hear this, I, I'm, I'm kind of um, encouraged that complaining isn't new. And reminded that, that grumbling, you know, it's like even the sound of it is just so at the heart of the human condition. This idea that we so naturally bring negative thoughts into almost everything we do. I mean, I sometimes can grumble. I don't, I don't need to think about it. I don't need to make a willful decision. I'm going to complain. I just, I just do it. I open up the refrigerator. I'm like, oh, who ate my leftover pizza? Oh yeah, probably me. But you know, just immediately, I, I think of when one of our kids uh, um, does something that they they shouldn't. My first response is not love or kindness; it's toward them, or even just blame Megan. Megan, you know, as if just any uh, hard thing is just a means of of blaming someone else. I think of the weather. You know, it's too hot, or in a few months, it'll be too cold. It would just bring this grr, church sermon too long. Oh, sermon, you know, music, not what I want to We just bring this. And then we argue. Arguing is just bringing that negative thought pattern into our relationships. And, and this isn't new, right? Paul's dealing with this. It is a part of the human condition. But here's, here's where I want to go, my concern. Not with the general human tendency to complain and grumble and argue. We see that all over. We just go to Yelp and look at what people have to say about local restaurants and businesses. Just pull up your Facebook feed and you'll find a nice list of people who are upset about something. That's a part of life. My concern is when this happens in the church. You know, some people believe they're placed by God in the world to grumble on his behalf. They're, they actually look at their grumbling and their arguing as an expression of, of holiness. Grumbling for God. And, and that's not okay. That's not okay. Is there a place for disagreement? Absolutely. I mean, Paul himself will fiercely disagree with the Apostle Peter. But notice what he disagrees about. When Paul has a disagreement, it's always centered on the critical component of his faith. It's always centered on the gospel. 
You know, Peter was not was behaving in a way that that pushed away Gentiles and was hypocritical, and Paul calls him out on it. You know, there is a time to disagree. But here's the thing, friends, a humble church recognizes that there's a few hills we'll die on. There's a few issues that we must make central. If we're willing to die on 50 hills, we're fighting a lot of battles we should just let go. Paul's saying, don't grumble, don't be a bunch of argumentative people. And as a church, when we center our life on the gospel and we find our joy in it, and we create a community that, that believes the good in others, that fights for the good of others, that, that has a sense of unity and grace and love, it will be one of the most attractive things anyone can find. But unfortunately, what people find in the church is often the opposite. They find in the church a critical spirit, an argumentative posture toward all things, and, and friends, that shouldn't be. A humble church isn't petty. It prioritizes the gospel and as such is gracious and loving and fights to believe the good in others. And this leads to their posture toward the world. A humble church saturates the city with the light of the gospel. A humble church is a, is a community of light. First, in order to be the light, a humble church can discern and call out the darkness. Paul says in 15, So that you may be blameless and pure children of God without blemish, though you live in a crooked and perverse society. We live in darkness. We live in a crooked and perverse society. Crooked, the idea here is something that's that's bent. It's it's like when you get that grocery cart and it has a wheel that's crooked and so it always kind of veers off course. Our world is that way. It'll take a good thing and just veer it off course. But also perverse. This is the idea of twisted. It takes things that are good and it twists them for perverted in ways. I mean, it's, it's using power not to be a force for positive change, but to abuse. It's using money rather than to be a blessing to others, but hoarding for greed. It uses knowledge to prop up a person and self. I mean, we could go on. It twists everything. Our world twists work and, and, and intimacy and, and words and speech. This is the world that we live in. We shouldn't be surprised. But it's in that world of corruption and abuse that God places us as the light. And look at how he says it. You are to be lights, lights, not one light, but a collection of lights to illuminate the city. It's lights, plural. Paul's vision for the church is not that they're just a spotlight. I mean, Think with me back pre-pandemic days when you could actually have large events, a concert or a sporting event or just some large event, and there would be a spotlight. You might be driving, you might be outside, and you look and be like, huh, there's a spotlight. Something big and impressive is happening over there. Now, did you ever drive to see what it was? I'm sure someone has, but more often than not, it's just a means of saying, wow, something big over that way. Something very impressive. Maybe Jake, uh, um, Justin Bieber's having a concert and Jacob might be there having a good time. You know, something big. But it's just a big impressive event. 
Paul's image for the church is not a spotlight. It's not shining something so that people can look and say, wow, what a, what a big event. The image he has in mind is stars illuminating the sky. I remember being in Colorado and being up on a cliff at night, and it just seeing the stars, you were wrapped in it. And it was glorious and beautiful, not because it was any one star, but the collective witness that they testified to the beauty of God. And this is the vision that Paul has for us. You see, if any one of us is just the light, you know, if, if I am the light and I do a good thing, you can look at me and you can say, wow, Jay is a really nice person. Look at the good thing that he did. Wow, a nice guy. But if it's a community, a community of people loving and doing what is right and sacrificing for others, you, don't, you can't just look at the person. You look at the collective witness and ask, what's behind them? And then if you peel it back one layer more and you look at churches, a whole city filled with churches that collaborate and work together, embody the gospel in their places. Now, illumination isn't just one place over here, but illumination, God's light, it penetrates schools. It's, it's in the hallway of a school. It penetrates every workplace. It penetrates every neighborhood. It's not confined to just one spot over there, but it illuminates. It wraps the city in the light of the gospel. And people can look back and marvel, not just at one impressive person or one impressive church, but at the God behind it all. A humble church recognizes it's just, it's just one part of the beautiful revealing of the story of God. It is not the light. It is a collection of lights in the world. A humble church wraps the city in the illumination of God's light. A humble church is energized by God's presence. A humble church isn't petty. A humble church saturates the city with the light of the gospel. And lastly, a humble church rejoices in service no matter the outcome. No matter the outcome. Looking again at verse 15, it ends, says, You shine as lights in the world, by beholding to the word of life, Paul's saying you need to cling to the gospel, the word of life, so that on the day of Christ, I will have a reason to boast that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice together with you all. Here's what Paul's saying. There's two ways this can go. Paul is laboring, he's partnering in the gospel, he's, he's, he's ministering to them. And he says, look, there's two ways this can all go. One way is the church in Philippi, it grasps the beauty and goodness of the gospel and continues to live it out, motivated by the presence of God, motivated by awe in God, not Paul, because Paul knows his time is about to end. And he wants it to continue. He says, there's one way, you get it, and there's fruit and that is what I long for. Paul says, and my labor is not in vain, that all that I've built, all that I've worked for, all that I've strived for, I want to see you grasp it and take it and continue it. That's one route. But also the other route is that Paul, that they don't get it. 
They don't pass on the gospel to the next generation. And in that sense, Paul views himself as being poured out like a drink offering. But here's the key. Whether there's fruit that Paul ever sees or not, Paul can rejoice. He can rejoice. He can celebrate. He can rejoice. He can, he, can lay, he can rest in peace. He can look at and he can say, my life was worth it. Whether it ever takes fruit, whether I ever see the fruit of it or not. Why? Why can Paul do that? This is so critical for us. Why? Because for Paul, his labor, his ministry, it wasn't about him. It wasn't about him. It ultimately was a sacrifice to God. Paul was so captured and energized by the presence of God. Paul was so desirous to to integrate that gospel into his life and so committed to being a light that it didn't ultimately, ultimately, it, it didn't matter if other people appreciated it or not. And this, friends, this is the critical piece of humility. You see, A proud person in church makes it about themselves, And they're only willing to serve when they're recognized, and they're only willing to serve if it leads to a particular outcome. Paul twists and he says, no, just like Jesus who emptied himself, just like Jesus who came into the world and left the glories of heaven and was humble, just like Jesus, we must humble ourselves. And we must be energized by the presence of God and know that our ultimate Calling is to be faithful to Him, to love, care, bring justice. And if people criticize us for it, so be it. If no one picks up the mantle and continues on, so be it. We can still rejoice. Because we are in awe of and reverent toward, not ourselves, not a personality, not some uh, crush, not a denomination, but God. Friends, in the days ahead, we have been entrusted with this. We have been entrusted with this word of life that Paul says. We have been entrusted with the gospel and in it, may we be energized by God and his presence. May we not be petty and grumbling and arguing about things that don't matter, may we see ourselves as a, as a, a community saturating the city in the light of the gospel, and may we do it all. May we be, be found faithful and rejoice in it, no matter the outcome. Let's pray. Lord, may we root ourselves in the best of the gospel movement that began with your son Jesus and continues today. May we be faithful to entrust this to others today. May we translate your gospel to our world because God, our world needs it. People are hurting. There is injustice and division and you have entrusted us with the message for our world today. May we be faithful to do it. Amen.